Tonight we are going to be talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and just the significance of it. In the past, I think I've kind of taken this and put it in four parts. I'm going to kind of summarize everything here tonight into one so that throughout the week we can talk about some other things, but I felt like it's important to kind of go over the basics again as far as what this festival is all about. What does it mean for the Christian church today? Why do we do it? Why is it not just a Jewish thing? Um, obviously, as we know, because God calls it His festival, and it is for His people, and we are His people. Um, as you know, it is a week-long festival with an eighth day added on to it, and when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, they lived in booths. They lived out in the wilderness and had to trust the Lord to provide. And oftentimes it kind of has been summed up in that way that that's kind of what it is. is just, you know, a way for us to remember we need God's protection and providence. But it is so much more than that. That isn't really what the Bible seems to indicate that it was all about. While there is an aspect of that that is true, when God delivered them from a picture of the Antichrist, Pharaoh, he became a hoopah over them. He became a protection so that they had to trust in him. When we went through the book of Revelation, we talked about that very thing as well, that God is going to take us to Jerusalem, it seems, and he becomes a hoopah over there. Isaiah talks about that that he is going to be a protection. And even like uh, Daniel Joseph had mentioned today, that there's going to come a time, even though we should every day, there's going to come a time when you have no choice but to trust him. To trust that he's going to provide, he's going to take care of, he's going to protect. Because you have not only no strength, but no recourse. There's nothing you can do. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And oftentimes that's where God wants us to be. To just remember we're not in control. From speaking from a man who loves to have control of everything in his life and does not like it when things are out of control and out of my, you know, being able to control the situation. These are good lessons for me. Now, again, you can read in Leviticus 23 about the festivals, but the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 43 says this, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. It goes on in verse 40. Uh, um, I think they're following chapter 2. Rejoice. So part of this is that we are to rejoice. Why? Because God brought us out from slavery. He has delivered us from evil. And we now look forward to the kingdom to come. And so I've said this many times, but I think it is so important. There are many in... Christianity today who believe that God is done with the Jew. And Scripture couldn't be more opposed to that belief. 
I love this in Romans chapter 11, verse 15. It says, if, the re- if there, the Jew, rejection is the reconciliation of the world. In other words, if you go look at Romans, it's talking about this, that because they had rejected the gospel, it was opened up to the Gentiles. In order, really, the Gentiles were supposed to be jealous of what the Jews had. And then, now the Gentiles are supposed to make the Jews jealous. And he goes on in Romans to say that God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all, meaning both Jew and Gentile. He didn't reject the Jew. But he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, the gospel was given to them, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. If they were rejected for your benefit, how much more to your benefit is it when they accept the gospel? Life from the dead. The resurrection. You see, you've been reconciled to God by Jesus on the cross, but by Jesus coming back, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And that will not happen until their acceptance of the gospel. Doesn't that make you want to go out and witness to the Jew? Doesn't that make you want... I mean, think about how beautiful it would be if the Jews saw Christians living out Christianity the way the Bible said it was supposed to be. Rather than saying, oh, those guys, not only did they kill the Jews, but they have the names of false gods on their lips, they do all these other festivals that have nothing to do with it, they eat unclean food, that is not the right Messiah, because if it was the Messiah, the Messiah wouldn't tell them to do all these godless, Torah-breaking commands. And so... Our very lifestyle as Christians has kept the Jew from seeing the gospel. I can't tell you how many Jews, it's been a number, that as I've witnessed and evangelized, when I talk to them about Christ in the Passover, are shocked. There's a ministry out there called One for Israel. I love listening to their podcast. And you can go listen to testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people, Jewish people who come to know the Lord and are thrilled to see Yeshua in what they have practiced their whole life and had no idea it was about him. As a Christian church, I believe this is our role is to make them jealous How do you do that? Not by teaching a Jesus that doesn't fit the scripture, but by teaching a Jesus that is scriptural and show them in the festivals Jesus. As I said last week on Yom Kippur, we don't celebrate Yom Kippur as the Orthodox ungodly Jew do. We do it as it was intended to do biblically to point us to Yeshua. And if we did that, I am convinced more and more Jews would be coming into the faith and would not be so anti-Christian because we have made a Torah-less, lawless Messiah. And if we would do that, what would be the benefit but life from the dead? That should be motive in itself that we as Christians should lift up 
this festival in the way it was intended to be about Yeshua. Isaiah 4, 5. I mentioned that God would become a sukkah, that, that canopy protection over you in the future. It says this, Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, what's that mean? All who are recorded among the living. That means the saved. Saved people, the righteous people. Okay? They remain in Jerusalem. They're the righteous ones. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. Remember that, because when Yeshua comes on this festival, he's going to wash away the filth of a woman. Just remember it. It says he will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Just like he did at the Exodus, he will do again in the future where he, after they came out of Egypt, became a sukkah. And they were to remember that by building their booths, their sukkahs. He's going to do it again. You're supposed to remember it to be reminded when you have no strength in you and you cannot do what God has called you to do. He's there for you. This blood stains cleansed by the spirit of judgment and fire upon Jerusalem. You see, once clean, once they're cleansed and made holy, then the sukkah comes, then the glory, then the canopy. God cannot live in unholiness. There had to be a cleansing of the blood of Yeshua in order for him to be able to live with you. You couldn't be good enough to do it, to, to clean your, your temple. Nobody could. As I said, those Orthodox Jews, in many cases, will probably live more godly, Torah-following lives than any of you. But they're unclean without the blood of Jesus. Well, there were three festivals in which God commanded you to go to Jerusalem. Today we often look at that as, oh, well, if you're going to do this, you've got to go to Jerusalem, the physical town over there in Israel. But I think the reason that this is, is because these are the festivals that are pointing to you going to the new Jerusalem of Revelation. You see, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread, that is the spring festival of the barley harvest, which basically we're going to see is Passover. You will see, I'll show you in a moment, Zechariah and Ezekiel in the end times talks about us celebrating Passover and tabernacles in the end times in Jerusalem. The other one is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is given, as we've talked about before, it is when the law was given and 3,000 died, and then at Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. It goes on, Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed. 
of the month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. In the feast of harvest, the firstfruits of thy labors, that is Pentecost. Okay, the firstfruits at the wheat harvest there. Which thou hast sown in the field, and then the feast of ingathering, which is the fall festival, which we are in right now, which is the grape harvest. And in gathering of the fruit. Don't miss that. So, Passover is barley, Pentecost is wheat, Tabernacles is grape. Now, there's teachings that we could do, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip through that tonight. But, the one we're going to focus on here is this Feast of Ingathering, because you see, Sukkot is known by many different names. Feast of Nations, the Feast of Ingathering, Sukkot, Tabernacles, did I say Feast of Nations, Feast of Booths. Well, you'll see why some of those are here in just a minute. But the ingathering is important especially. Prophetically, we see that this festival is biblically, prophetically speaking of the harvest. The ingathering of grapes. The fruit. Well, another angel came out of the temple, it says here in Revelation 14, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the throne, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Which harvest? Another angel came out from altar, which had four, or power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather what? The clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Even Revelation 14 is making a connection to the grape harvest, the fruit harvest, the ingathering as a time of judgment with fire, as we just saw mentioned in Isaiah, was it, or wherever. So, if this was one verse, maybe you could say, oh, nice coincidence. But I think that this is biblical evidence, little clues, breadcrumbs that he's saying... Listen, I'm giving you clues of the season I'm coming back. Look at Isaiah 24, 13. So will it be on earth among the nations, as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest, they raise their voices, they shout for joy from the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Go read Isaiah 24. This is talking about his second coming. Jeremiah 25, 30, the Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes. Shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword. You could also go look at Joel 3.13. Same thing, connecting his return to the grape harvest. You can look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1-9. through 9. We see that Solomon is dedicating the temple. You know, after they, they built you know, Solomon's temple, this grand thing, the glory of the Lord comes and fills the temple and... 
after that, you're going to see kind of something that almost mimics the Lord's Prayer. But it was also at this time that that happened. So the glory comes and fills the temple, just also like we see in Revelation, if you go back there again. The glory is coming at that time. At Zechariah 14, we see that, as I mentioned before, you will be celebrating this in the future. It's talking about after the Lord comes back and we see the Feast of Tabernacles. If you don't come up to Jerusalem to celebrate it, you get no rain. And there are others that we could look at. Yes? Is that talking about during like the millennial rain? Seems to be, yeah. So, what went on in Jerusalem during this time of year? When Jesus walked the earth, what were they doing for the Feast of Tabernacles? Clearly, they didn't have their campers out. Well, the temple is no longer there today, and the temple was a very center of the festival. Today, in Israel, they still build their sukkahs. I actually just texted Ron today. We were talking about the, what sukkahs look like over there, and I told him, I said, send me a picture of your sukkah. But it would have been 11 o'clock at night when he got it there, so I, he didn't respond, so I'll get it probably tomorrow. But I wanted a picture of his sukkah to give you an idea of what it looks like over there right now. Did you send him a picture of ours? I have not this year. But anyway, the Bible talks about this in Leviticus 23, and I'm not going to go through all the details again for the sake of time. I think you kind of know that you're supposed to decorate it with the boughs of different kinds of you know, fruit and palms and so on and live in it during these seven days. You know, today they don't live in them, but they eat and they fellowship and all of that in there. Sometimes they'll sleep in them and so on. But back in Jesus' day, while they did do that as well, as I said, the focus was more on the temple because God was going to dwell in the temple. And what they would do is they had these 75-foot-tall candlesticks, and there were these bowls that they would carry up. These priests on their back would have these huge, I think it were like 20 gallons or something, uh, so seven gallons, I guess, seven-gallon buckets of oil, and they would climb up a ladder 75 feet, not very many of us can relate to that outside of Matt, um, and pour the oil in these bowls and then use old retired priest garments as the wicks. And since it was 75 foot high and Jerusalem was already up on a hill, you could see Jerusalem forever. And Jerusalem got the name, the light on a hill. The light of the world. It is, as you will see, at this very festival that the Bible records Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. He is the temple. It is not an accident. We see in John 8, 12, it says this, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Go look in John 8. It is at the Feast of Tabernacles he's saying this. Every Jew knew the light of the world. It was a big part of the, the ceremony. Jesus saying, I'm what you're supposed to be looking at. 
I'm the light on the hill. I'm the light of life. I'm what this is about. Well, keep in mind that this was commanded in Leviticus that you have to come up to Jerusalem to do this. Everybody had to. Historians tell us there was about two and a half million people that would descend upon Jerusalem. Imagine that. Okay. Can you imagine two and a half million people descending on Hastings, Nebraska? Jerusalem was not a big city. I, I would say Hastings covers probably more than Jerusalem would. And so two and a half people descending upon this. I mean, you think this is crowded for Sukkot. Yeah, and by the way, we've talked about this before, and we're going to mention it here. I believe Jesus was born on Sukkot. Which is why the inns were full. There was no room for him in the inn. Why? Because they were coming for a festival. We'll talk about that coming up just briefly. Anyway. There were three groups of priests here. The first group of priests would be offering the sacrifices. Seventy bulls were to be offered because there were 70 nations and so on. The second group of priests went out to the water gate, through the water gate of the city, to the pool of Siloam, which was basically had living water. Moving water was called living water. Okay? Haimim. Um, and so the living water, it had to be living. They would take water out of the pool of Siloam, bring it to, through the water gate again to the temple, go to the temple stairs, and they would pour out one uh, gold vase, pour out the water on the steps, and one gold vase poured out the wine. Now this is one of the great ceremonies that would take place. The third group of priests... Okay, the sacrifice, getting the water. The third group would go out and get these big, huge palm branches. Some say like 20, 25 feet long branches. And they would bring them back to the temple and be waving them as they would come into the temple. And they say it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming into the temple. You might say the glory of God filling the temple. This was the last and greatest day of the feast that this was to take place. Now, today we hear that it was kind of a symbol of praying for, you know, rain and fortune for the next year. But we know that it was far beyond that. It was Jesus, the latter rain. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but if you just do a word search for latter rain that that too is a picture and symbol of the time of the Lord's return. Many times in scripture, the latter rain, R-A-I-N. And so he is a picture of that. And here, they're basically saying, bring us the rain. The fall latter rains. And Yeshua becomes the latter rains. When they would come into town, they would be rejoicing and they would sing Psalm 118, which says, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Literally in Hebrew, you would basically be crying out, he has become Yeshua. 
technically, Yeshua me, basically, basically my salvation, the Lord's salvation for me. Ati, there we go, Yeshua Ati. So the voice of rejoicing and salvation is the tabernacles of the righteous, is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly, it goes on to say. You can see why they would sing this at the Feast of Tabernacles, bringing salvation and that salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. Isaiah 12 also says this, that, or this is also what they would be singing as they would ride into Jerusalem. Behold, God is my salvation, Yeshuati again. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation, Yeshuati. Therefore, with joy shall he draw water out of the wells of salvation. Again, you can see why when these priests are drawing water out of, you know, living water out of the pool of Siloam, bringing it through the water gate. So, literally calling out Yeshua's name, going back to the temple. In John 7, this is what Jesus says on this very day that the high priests or the priests are taking the water from the living waters of the pool of Siloam. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, it says here in verse 2. You've got to really go read the whole chapter, but I'm going to jump around here, just showing you that this is the time. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. It's going to be important. What is Jesus doing during this festival? Teaching. It goes on in verse 37. Then in the last day, the great day of the feast, the day that this water libation offering is being done, Yeshua stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Don't think there was a Jew that didn't know he was comparing himself to the living waters of the water libation because that's the day and the greatest day that everybody looked forward to that this is being done. Now you tell me that any westernized Christian man or woman who reads John 7 and doesn't know about these festivals understands what Jesus was saying there. You cannot understand the New Testament if you don't understand the festivals. It's that serious. And yet so many, oh, why do you do those? Why do you do that stuff? Are you a Jew? No, but I love Jesus. I love the Jew. The Jew, Jesus. You see, it opens up the scriptures to us. And we understand why Yeshua did the things that he did. Jesus declared to be that salvation that they were singing about in Psalm 118, or Psalm 18, and in Isaiah. So, that eighth day 
I want to show you in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 31, what went on in the Old Testament. It says, Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of your year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? And again, if you don't know these festivals, how do you even understand the Old Testament? I used to read the scriptures, and when I'd see Feast of Tabernacles, it was, do you remember the, uh, uh, who's the, the cartoon? Charlie Brown. And when the teacher's speaking, wah, 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 wah. That's as much as I got out of Every time I'd read Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, blah, blah, wah, wah, and moving on to something I did understand. By studying the festivals, the scriptures have become, wow, I get, wow, now I get it. It opens up the word to us. So, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel has come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, well, we know where that is, Jerusalem, thou shalt read this law. The Hebrew word there is Torah. You shall read Torah before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates. So, what do you do? At the Feast of Tabernacles, you gather to Jerusalem so that the law is read, and it is for everybody, men, women, children, and foreigners. Remember, this was called the Feast of Nations. This is the only feast in which other nations are invited to be a part of. So in Israel, you will have Jews welcoming Gentiles into their sukkah. No other time would that happen. It's not a coincidence that at the Feast of Tabernacles, the ingathering of the nations, that we see 70 bulls being offered on this time. The exact number the Jews say that at the Tower of Babel, the, the, the word went out to 70 nations. At Pentecost, it went out, they say, to 70 nations. Because these 70 nations, the same thing at the Tower of Babel, they say that when the earth split, it was split into 70 nations. In other words, what he's saying is the whole world. It would be opened up to the whole world on the Feast of Tabernacles. It goes on, Before all Israel in their hearing, gather the people together, men, women, and children, and thy stranger that is in with thy gates, that they may hear, that they may learn, and fear the Lord your God, and do what? Observe. Do. Observe to do all the words of this law. So ingrain that in your mind. What goes on on the Feast of Tabernacles throughout the Old Testament? Gather to Jerusalem, hear the word of God, learn the word of God so that you understand it, and then go do it. Remember what we talked about here just a couple of weeks ago on the Feast of Trumpets, Nehemiah? During this season, what did they do? They gathered, they taught, they learned and understood, and then went and did. That is the pattern of this festival over and over and over in the scriptures. 
Let me tell you, the Feast of Tabernacles is the time that Yeshua is going to come back. He is going to gather you to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, be a hoopah over you. He is going to teach the Torah will go out from Zion, just as Scripture says the law will go out from Zion. And he is going to fix all of our misunderstandings. He is going to help you understand it so that you will do it. You will do Sukkot. Zechariah 14 told me that. You will do Passover. Ezekiel tells me that. You will keep the commandments of God. It's what the pattern is. Isaiah speaks of it this way in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, end times. He says, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house, Jerusalem, shall be established and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations, shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Guys, if you don't understand tabernacles, you don't understand Isaiah 2. What's the pattern? What's the model? Gather to Jerusalem in the last days. So that he will teach us. The law goes out from Zion so that we can hear it, understand it, and do it. He's going to set us straight, clean up all of our false doctrines, all of our misunderstandings. That is one reason why this is my favorite festival. I can't wait to be right all the time. <laughs> and we will be. Because he's going to give us an understanding. Guys, I believe right now, as I've said many times, we are in Babylon. We talked about that in Revelation. And our, our culture, even our Christianity, is filled with Babylonian culture, Babylonian ways, pagan, godless ways. I mean, we've talked about the days of our weeks are, 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 and the days of the months, the days of the week are all named after pagan gods. We, I, I mean... Paganism has infiltrated. We, we just kind of took it upon ourselves and became a part of the culture. He's going to come and take you out of Babylon. And he is going to straighten us all out. And we're not going to argue anymore about it. There will not be different denominations there anymore. We will all know the truth. And man, if that isn't something to look forward to, I don't know what is. Micah says this, and by the way, again, notice all of this. What, what's happening? He's telling us here everything that happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. Any Jew reading this would be able to tell you, oh, when's this supposed to happen? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, because that's the pattern. That's what goes on at Tabernacles, okay? Micah, same thing in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. But in the last days... It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Sounds just like what we just read, doesn't it? And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths, for Torah shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Micah agrees. The nations are gathered. The law goes out and they follow it. Just like what happened at the whole book of Nehemiah, as I said. See the consistency of the scriptures here? So if it's consistent in the Old Testament, don't you think it should be consistent in the New when Yeshua practiced it? When he came? Yeah. Look at this. In John 7, going back, again, I encourage you, go read John 7, and I can show you that the entire book of John, outside of three chapters, and they probably are too, I just can't prove it from Scripture, but I can show you in Scripture pretty well that the entire book of John is written at the time of festivals. It says it right there in Scripture. Just go look, go through the book of John and see during the feast of uh, you know this, the feast of that, or at Passover and all of the things that take place. It's all around festivals. If you won't understand the festivals, you won't understand John, the entire book of John. After Jesus proclaimed himself to be the living water, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth day, the greatest day, look what the Jews say. John 7, verse 40, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, I am the light of the world, of a truth, this is the prophet. See, they got it. How many of you have read John 7 and go, Oh, wow! Nobody, probably. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, Jesus is not the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. The word Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? There were these things that were puzzling them. They're doctrines that just couldn't allow them to let go and say, yeah, this, this is him. Then answered them the Pharisees, those that really knew the law. Let me just say the pastors of the day. Are you deceived also? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? Boy, I'll tell you what, that can, I can relate. Are you so deceived? None of the churches do these festivals. But look at this. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. The Jews did not know the law. So what does Yeshua need to do? Fix it. Remember, you gather them to Jerusalem, you teach them the law so that they can understand it properly. If that's the pattern of tabernacles, I expect Yeshua to do the same thing here in the New Testament. Weren't the Pharisees very familiar with the law, though? They were very familiar with the law, and then some is the problem. The Pharisees built fences around the laws to describe and explain what that meant. For example, the Sabbath. God never said you can only walk so many steps, but they said, nope, you can't do this, you can't heal, you can't do any of these things on the Sabbath. You can't make mud on the Sabbath. And so what the Jews did is they corrupted the truth by adding to and taking away from. Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep, our own doctrine above the very words of God only. And that is the Pharisee. Guys, I, I truly believe Christianity is filled with Pharisees. And, and I'm not trying to be so negative and, you know, constantly picking on the church or anything like that. I don't think that's right to do, but I, we do have to call them out. We do have to challenge people to realize, wait a minute. Have I inherited lies from my fathers, things of no benefit, things of vanity, as Jeremiah says, will happen in the end times? People are going to go and say, let us go with you. We, we've inherited lies. Things of no benefit. The Jews did not know the true law. So Jesus, on the eighth day of this festival, is going to clear some things up. I propose we do not understand the law today as well. That's why I believe that I get so misunderstood so many times is because the church does not understand the law. They see it as a list of do's and don'ts. They don't see it as what Jesus you know, said in the chosen. I am the law. If you're looking for Yeshua in the law, how can it be bad? But if you say the law isn't Yeshua, but it's just a list of rules, then yeah, it would be bad. But that tells me you don't understand the law. Because, as I've said many times, on the road to Emmaus, Yeshua showed himself to the disciples through the law and the prophets. As a matter of fact, the entire New Testament has been built upon those disciples going out and preaching the gospel, not from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Timothy, or Corinthians, but from the law and the prophets. Wow. Jeremiah 2.8, look at this. It says, the priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. Those, those that handle the law, guys, those are the pastors. They did not know God. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. By the way, Yeshua calling himself the living waters, they knew Jeremiah 2.8 and God is calling him the fountain of living waters. Don't think they missed that. They have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now the Jews have always considered water and the law of God, the word of God, connected. Uh, we'll talk about this in the tabernacle, but the bronze basin that had all the water that you washed your hands in, it was the word doing the washing. The word of God is that law. We hear this quoted all the time in some ways that, um, my people, uh, well, I'll get to it here in a second. These people who knew not the law, who should know the law, kind of like what Jesus told um, Nicodemus, you being a teacher of the law and still you do not know? That's why I think the law is so important, guys. I don't have the time to do this, but just to remind you, I, I, I love the message of the tzitzit, those fringes on the corners of the garment that they wore. It gives me goosebumps every time when we, 
I know what you're thinking of. I, I love going to Israel. There's a place there, um, Magdala, that is positively there where Mary Magdalene came from. And there's a picture of this that we have in our house. But there was that woman that was bleeding for 12 years. And she comes and she grabs on to the seat seat. The Bible says the corner of her garment. But in the Greek, we know. I'm not going to go to the details. It was the seat seat. And the seat seats, those little fringes, are the law of God. That's what the Bible says they were to remind you of. She grabs on to the seat seats and she's healed. And God says, power has come out from me. And I love that because this is what it says in Zechariah 8.23. It says that in the end times, ten Gentiles are going to take hold of the hem of one Jew by his robe. That one Jew is Yeshua. And say, take us with you. We've heard God is with you. We need to grab on to the law of God because we have become people just like Jeremiah 2.8 is talking about. People who we've rejected the fountain of living water. We are cisterns that don't hold the law. We don't hold it at all. We can't handle it. We don't understand it. Jesus, John 8. After John 7, we see this. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. That's very important. Because where is Yeshua coming back to? Mount of Olives, where it'll be split in two, right? Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him. He sat down and taught them. Again, don't lose this. Jesus is living out the pattern of what was supposed to go on every Sukkot, tabernacles. He goes to Mount Olives, gathers the people, and he teaches them. He sat down and taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken into adultery. Now notice where he is at this time, though. First he goes to Mount, uh, Mount Olives. The Bible says in the end times when he does it, it will be split in two. But what's that allowed for? So that people can go up to Jerusalem, to Zion. So after he goes to Mount of Olives, he then goes to the temple, Mount Zion. In the temple is where he is at when this woman who has been caught in adultery is brought to him by the scribes and the Pharisees, those whose cisterns hold no water. And it says, they had set her in, its, in the midst. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken into adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. The law says this, but what do you say? You teach us. You explain it to us. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to explain it to them, and what are they going to do? See ya. They're going to understand. They're going to have a new understanding. Now, the Bible is going to be clear about all of what they understand, but they understand something differently because they're not going to stone her. We'll talk about that if we have time. So, the eighth day gathers them at his feet to teach them his ways as he will do when he returns again. 
After his instruction, he bows or kneels down and he writes something in the dirt. John 8, verse 6 through 8. They which heard it, heard Jesus answer, being convicted by their own conscience. So part of their understanding was this, conviction in their hearts. When the law went out from Zion, it convicted them. I love that. Their misunderstandings, their false doctrines were corrected by the living waters, by the word of life. And it says, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Remember I told you that it said he would wash away the filth of the women? Here we see Yeshua did that very thing. Washed away the filth of this woman. Yes. We'll get to that. I think Jeremiah predicted this would happen as well. In Jeremiah 17, verses 13 through 14, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Guys, just a few days before, many were people were saying, Oh, you're, you're, you know, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. And now all of a sudden they have forsaken the living water, and because they forsake the living water, what happens? Jeremiah says they will be written in the earth. Yeshua bends down and writes something in the earth about those who have forsaken the living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. They were convicted in their conscience. Whatever it was. I cannot tell you the very words, but I'll give you a possibility here in a moment. But I want you to see the pattern first. Don't miss the pattern. Gather to Zion. Teach. Correct so that you understand and then go and do. This is the passage that I was trying to say that I think we hear all the time. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. How many times have we heard that? But it's always in context of doctrine. In other words, oh, you just don't know your Bible well enough. But that's not the context of Hosea 4. You go read Hosea 4, 6. Read the very next verses. It says this. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law. Torah. Of thy God. When God is saying lack of knowledge, the context of Hosea 4 is saying lack of Torah. You don't know the law. My people are destroyed because they don't know the law of God. That's what it's saying. Sound familiar? I love A.W. Tozer. He says this. Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. 
Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, lack of Torah, lack of doing, because they misunderstand. Boy, do we need the Lord to come back so that he can gather us, teach us, so that we know what to do. Well, we believe as well, I'm just going to fly through this part, I've talked about it many times. We sang happy birthday to Jesus today because I believe that when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, some translations say dwelt, but it's literally tabernacled among us, that that may be a very good indication. And the timing fits when we know, you know, John the Baptist is six months older than Yeshua. And we know when Zechariah was ruling or serving in the temple, you do the math it fits that he would be born on the Feast of Tabernacles. The shepherds would be out in the field. And I believe that there is a good chance that this is his birthday. So happy birthday, Yeshua. That's as much as I'm going to say on that. Going back to this woman caught in adultery to kind of close out with this last little bit. Leviticus 20 told us what was supposed to happen if you were caught in adultery. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife with, or with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Notice in this story, only the woman was brought. Where's the guy? They're already not going about this correctly. They said she was caught in adultery. Well, bring the dude. Nobody's there. I think there's a high probability this was a setup because the scribes and the Pharisees are constantly trying to challenge Jesus. They were never really looking for truth. They were trying to trap him. And here's this poor lady, I think, probably being brought and, you know, what can she do? Deuteronomy 22, verse 20 says, If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Remember the Pharisees say, hey, Moses said stone him. Well, Moses also said bring the dude. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. So, in other words, if it's true, yep, stone her. Verse 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Well, this adulterous woman was not stoned. And at first glance, and what I've heard many times, is people say, well, Jesus broke the law. The law of Moses said you're supposed to stone a woman caught in adultery. He didn't have her stoned. I don't believe Jesus could break the law. If he did, he couldn't be the Messiah. So, you must misunderstand something. Well, a few things. Number one, God is the only true judge who can give mercy. So I'm not going to deny that. All of us would deserve to be stoned. And God does give mercy. 
We do know that if it wasn't for Yeshua, yeah, you would have to pay the penalty for your sin. Thanks be to God, who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul says. So, yes, God has given mercy. But he hadn't yet, he hadn't died yet when this had happened. Second thing is, he says, go and sin no more. He's upholding the law in that because no proof was given. He gave a chance for them. Well, prove it. Show me which one of you, you know, give me the evidence. None was brought forth. So actually he would have broken the law to stone her. Third, the Bible said there in Deuteronomy, who's supposed to kill. In Deuteronomy 17, 7, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. In other words, Jesus was trying to uphold the law. Well, he was without sin, cast the first stone. He who never did this, he who is innocent, cast the first stone. You guys are the witnesses, do it. Now, then after that, all the people were supposed to do it. Well, nobody was willing to pull the trigger. Now, the whole reason for this was if you lied and were a false witness and you did that, you murdered and then you could be killed. I think that's why these guys weren't willing to pull the trigger. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm just along for the ride here. I was just here for support. You didn't, you know. So, if someone gave false testimony, blood would be on their heads. They didn't want that. That's what I think. So, now we have another issue then. Okay, the Bible said that if it's proven, stone them. No proof, no stoning. So if it's not proven, what do you do? If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and this is hidden from her husband, we don't know. Her impurity is undetected, no evidence. Then he is to take his wife to the priest. By the way, Jesus is our high priest. He shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor. Dust in the tabernacle. Where is Yeshua right now? In the tabernacle, writing on dust of the tabernacle. The priest shall put the water or the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has had sexual relations with her you, and you have not gone astray, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. In other words, maybe go and sin no more. But if you have gone astray, may the Lord cause you to become a curse when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water. Again, I don't know all of the details here, but all I know is there was no hint of her confession, no hint of any evidence, so it seems to be unknown what was going on. Perhaps God, Yeshua, bent down and wrote in the dust of the earth, because at least what... Torah or the, the Talmud tells us what was written on the scroll were the curses in the name of Yahweh. Maybe he wrote Yahweh. 
down in the dust of the temple as a reminder to them. I don't know. No evidence? No first stone? All right. Maybe he started writing curses down. I don't, I don't know. All I know is all every element here of Numbers chapter 5 where this is talked about are here in the John 8 story. Living water. Okay, you're supposed to get living water. He's there. The priest, he's there. The holy dust of the temple, it's there. That's where he's at. And then writing. And he writes. Again, I don't know what he wrote. All I know is since no one condemned her by law, she could not be stoned, so he did not break the law. And God's judgment for Numbers 5 then was passed. Go and sin no more. I've written. I know that you didn't do anything. Go be free. There will be no curse on you. I, I don't know. Just all the elements are there. I think it was a setup. Okay, Though she was caught, no one was accusing her and throwing her... You know, throwing the first stone. So, for what it's worth. But the point is this as well. In the big picture, what goes on? On the eighth day of the festival, the day that Yeshua is supposed to come back, he goes to Mount Olives. He gathers you to the temple. He teaches the law so that you understand it. You're convicted in your soul so that you're going to go and do it. That you will sin no more. That's what God does. That's what he did to the woman. The woman is a picture of us, the bride. The bride of Christ. And he has pronounced mercy on you because of the blood of Yeshua. That is what this festival is all about. And now you know what John 8 is talking about. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Your word that is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Your word that lives in us. Your word that is the law of God. Your word that is a mercy. Your word that is filled with grace. Your word that we want to just dwell in. That we would be so filled that we would never thirst again. God, teach us your ways. Teach us to understand. Clear up our misunderstandings and let us just walk in unity, in faith. That we too would be forgiving and not hold grudges against one another. That these petty little things that go on in our lives, Lord, we would say, it doesn't matter. God, we want to just be an extension of your arm showing love to those who do not know you and, and even to those who do. God, I look forward to the day that you return and clean up our messes. But until that day comes, Lord, may your spirit continue to lead, direct, and guide and may we understand it more. Come, Yeshua. Come, Bo Yeshua Bo. Lord, we love you. Let this festival be one of rejoicing as we look forward to that eighth and great day when you will set your foot down on the Mount of Olives. May our eyes not be taken off of you. In Yeshua's holy, precious name, the living waters 
the light of the world. Amen.